Welcome to The Power of Stories, a podcast by women, about women, and for women. Their voices and their stories. I am Sharon Catherine D'Agostino, a passionate advocate for the empowerment of women and girls everywhere and the founder of SayItForward.org. And I'm Yodit Kifle-Smith, a creative dedicated to making sure the voices and stories of women are heard. I have the privilege of working with Sharon on SayItForward.org to do just that. In this podcast, you will meet courageous women from around the world whose unique path to empowerment will leave you encouraged and inspired. Today, we are excited to talk with Judith Staff, who joins us from her home in Northampton, England. Judith is a primary school teacher. She left teaching a few times to work with women and girls who have survived physical and sexual violence and abuse. For the past few years, she has worked on a government-funded violence reduction initiative for young children aged three and up. Thank you so much for being with us today. We're so excited to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Judith, I add my welcome also. I'd like to start with a move that you made from England, where you were born, to Canada when you were eight years old, because that would be an incredible shift in one's life and certainly a fundamental part of your story. I was more than happy living in England, growing up, had a nice school, best friends, all the rest. My dad was working in child protection at the time, my parents both social workers, and he knew uh, some guy at work that had gone to Canada, which was like land of milk and honey at the time, and, you know, come and live in this great place where the houses are big and the roads are wide. And so he spoke to my dad about this. There was a call for, um, in terms of immigration, they were looking for social workers. So my dad went over when I was about six and he had a look round and he came flying back oh this is great yeah let's go here so my mum had myself and my brother at the time so they just basically sold everything up our whole house all our toys everything out from under us and it was being sold to us as kids you know like this big adventure but I wasn't really not on board I didn't want to go and I didn't feel like I could say that at the time you know when we think about children and not having a voice I, re- I just really I couldn't see why we were making a change because I felt like everything was okay So we went to Canada when I was eight. By the time I was sort of nine and a half, ten, my parents split up and my dad moved in with someone else. And then that happened in about June, July time. And then at the Christmas, the house burnt down. There was a house fire and we literally lost everything. So I'd already lost all my things once because we had to get rid of a lot to move overseas. You know, it was expensive. We were then homeless for about six weeks and we were staying with friends. And then one night the friend's father got quite drunk and violent and threatened us. And so we had to move out of there. And then we were kind of staying in the car for a few days. We stayed in like little motorcycles hotels and then my mum got us an apartment but that was really stressful as well I couldn't bear the smell of smoke I was really quite traumatized and she had some of the things that she had stashed in one of the bedrooms in this apartment and one day she locked us out by accident and she made me climb in through this bedroom window where all this smoke damaged stuff was and let us back into the apartment and that was horrific and then like about a month later we moved house And then it was my birthday 
and I was 11 and she forgot my mum forgot my birthday <laughs> so it was just for me that was like my most horrible year from there things just carried on being really off track throughout my teens and I always wanted to move back to England and then sure enough I just did one day I just thought this is it I'm going and I was in my 20s by then and I just moved back and here I still am and I've been back to visit less than a handful of times since I left it was a really good decision for me to come back Um, and I think there was a lot of trauma connected to my time in Canada really. We've mentioned that you are a primary school teacher. And so where did that journey of knowing you wanted to be a teacher begin? I didn't want to be a teacher, right? By the age of five, I saw my dad rescuing children that were suffering abuse and neglect. And I wanted to be a social worker like my dad. So he kind of taught me out of it. He said, oh, I don't want you doing that. It makes you not a great parent because you're so focused on these children that you work with. And um, and that was kind of how I fell into teaching. I knew I wanted to work with children. And yet, after probably the first 10 years in in mainstream classroom teaching, I was gravitating towards those children that either hadn't had breakfast or were having issues at home and nobody was looking after them. People were just going, leave that at the door. We're doing maths now. We're doing science, whatever. And I found that really conflicting inside because because I was that child who had to sit there when, you know, those days when we were kind of living in the car and my mum's like, I'll pick you up after school, <laughs> you know, kind of go in and concentrate and do your work and behave and I was like okay um I like don't have anywhere to live we don't even have a bed but you know mm-hmm. yeah I better go to school and do the right thing so that's how come my teaching journey has kind of gone an interesting path um, but I did my teaching qualification here in England and I've only really taught in England and I still love it. What is the work that you do in violence reduction? The Home Office in the UK about three years ago realised that there were certain areas of the country where there were higher than average rates of violent crime, interpersonal violent crime, knife crime, gun crime, domestic violence, that kind of thing. And so they provided money for police forces in those areas. It's basically anything anyone can provide throughout the course of life. So from babies to old people to try and reduce the violence in the community and in the homes. And not many people do anything with under fives. And I would say even under tens, um, most of the work is age 12, 13 and upwards when they're working with children and young people. I was just asked to develop something that could be used with essentially three to five year olds. But I do work with up to like kind of age 11 and just explain to them that, you know, unless someone says to you when you're four, it is not okay for one parent to hit the other one. It is not okay for your parent to hit you or harm you or, you know, speak to you in a certain way. Unless somebody says that to a child of that age, they have no idea that that is not okay because children that age don't even socialize with other children outside of school. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? They're not even going around other kids' houses so much. That doesn't start until they're older. So I developed a program just for this project. It's called Tiz Time because I use a puppet called Tiz and she comes to all the schools with me and we just have these really gentle play-based conversations about that's not okay and it's not okay that someone has either done that to you or hurt your mother in that way. And it's kind of hopefully 
the conversation that you're having with that child will be overheard by the other six or seven children in the group. And that message is getting in there early. Just talking about just the kind of childhood you've endured, you know, one trauma event after another. How has the work that you do with children now kind of heal that inner child in you? So there's a woman called Janina Fisher. She writes a lot about trauma and she writes about how we have like our work self, our professional brain, if you like, and then our real self. And sometimes I am in my work mode and I'm not making those connections. Whereas mm. other times, for example, there was a little girl I worked with about 18 months ago and I worked with her just one-to-one. So she had half an hour a week just with me and she had a, her father had gone to prison. She was only five, but if you spoke to her, she was like, an 18 year old. She cared for her mother. She cared for her brother. She made sure everything was okay. She had to be strong. And I really completely identified with that little girl, although I wasn't the age she was when I was feeling like that. I was probably a few years older. You know, she really did crawl into my heart in that way. And to try and say to her, you're not your brother's mother. You don't have to do that, honey. You can cry. You can feel upset about Mm. things. To try and tell her some of those things that nobody told me was it healing yeah I think in a way it's I think healing I've thought a lot about this is like a continual journey and so I still need to tell myself that now and by being able to tell it to that child outside of me um, some of that is obviously being absorbed I think definitely there's a, a correlation between my childhood experiences and the way I didn't have a voice I wasn't heard I had to be strong and the work that I'm doing now to try and support children in similar contexts. Judith you are committed to amplifying the voices of children at what point in your childhood did you start speaking up? I don't think I did but then We know now that children's behavior is a form of their voice. And wow, yeah, definitely. As a teenager, I absolutely was was trying to be heard. I didn't have a platform for my voice. I I skipped a lot of school. I, I didn't want to be in trouble. I didn't have an adult that valued me, I suppose, in my life because my mom, she had mental health issues. She was on a lot of Valium at the time and she was just very focused on my little brother and her work so I was left kind of to raise myself from about nine and I think because of that I had to just get on with it I was a troubled child but I was not a child that got in trouble I wanted my teachers to like me and I was teacher's pet and I wanted to be so because I didn't want to lose that relationship I kind of flew under the radar you know I'd say oh I've got a headache I need to go and then I'd go to the mall and just drink iced tea and look for boys when I should have been at school but you know I didn't want to get in trouble but I definitely look back now and think my teenage years is when I found my voice I just wasn't able to speak I was behaving. In understanding your teenage years a little better now how does that impact the way that you try to influence your children? You learn to parent by how you were parented. And because I wasn't really parented in my mind's eye from the age of nine or 10, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Um, luckily, my husband <laughs> seems to. So at least one of us is a responsible person. But um, No, I am responsible, obviously. Yeah. I don't feel envious of my children, but it's hard to not wish that things were different for me. 
I don't see my mother in my memories growing up because she just wasn't available to me. You know, my daughter will especially, she'll say, oh, come out with us, mum, you know, come shopping with us like this. And I think, God, I I didn't go anywhere or do anything with my mum. She just wasn't part of my life at that age. And I'm like, are you sure? You sure you want me there? And, you know, they kind of sometimes think I'm cool and their friends like me. And that's really interesting and shows how different our lives were in terms of mine and theirs. You made a statement that literally took my breath away. You said, I didn't have an adult who valued me. That's a shocking statement. I'm sure that among our listeners, there are women who also had that experience in their childhood. What would you say to them? I think the main thing is to not let that ebb away at your own self-worth and your own self-belief and um, my own ideas about my self-worth and my self-belief and what I can do and what I can achieve. There was a big, massive ceiling on that for ever such a long time because I I was criticised quite a bit. My mum just wasn't available. My dad was very critical. I was the eldest child. He worked with children with what he would call real problems. So like my dad's mantra was, you have nothing to cry about. And yet he didn't know half of what was going on at home. He worked in child protection. So I had to keep a lot of what was happening with my mum, kind of keep that away from him because otherwise he would have you know, gone for custody and just would have created a big mess. So I was trying to keep some of that from him. And he's like, oh, you have nothing to be upset about. You know, you have a good life. And I think to to not have someone who values you or who you feel important to is so damaging. It can result in you growing up and thinking that you're not worthy. So I think I would say to other women who didn't have someone in your life, not to try and be that person for yourself, but we internalize these things as children. And it's really important for that to then not form the basis of our whole belief Mm -hmm. system. Because if that becomes your belief system, then your outlook and the opportunities that you think are not available to you or whatever is is all based on that. Whereas actually, who says? (laughs) That's one way of looking at it, I think. What kept you fighting? I am quite determined. I think I do have that spirit and sometimes resilience is like sink or swim or or not even swim but just like keep your head above water but it's just keep keep breathing take the next breath and the next one and I think I learned that from very very young Um, I had to pull myself through really difficult things and because of that I think that's where some of that fire and determination comes from if I wouldn't have just kept going I would have just disintegrated somehow. Mm. Wow. It's clear that you are using your voice and that you've claimed your power. But how would you encourage other women and girls to confidently use their voice and claim their power? I think one of the most powerful things we can do is to be like role modeling, that kind of thing for other people. And I try, sometimes I'll be out in the grocery store and I hear a little girl, you know, saying 
a really small child, maybe three or four, saying something loud to her parent and and maybe her mother will say, you're so bossy. And I say, oh, you know, you need to tell mummy this is leadership skills and this is spirit and it's really <laughs> important to, you know, and I part of me wants to say, please don't say that to your child. <laughs> but, you know, I try and think of a diplomatic way to, to just reframe it for that parent, you know. A lot of times I'll be having conversations with the children. So I work in groups of between three to eight children at a time. Um, and I'll have maybe a, a group of five-year-olds in front of me, five or six five-year-olds. And sometimes I notice that the boys are very dominant in the conversation. They've got an idea and another thing and another thing. And the girls either will sit silently and just smile or they'll go to speak and they'll get talked over. Now, because these children are really little and they don't know any different, and some of it is learnt behaviour from home, but it needs challenging. So I let the little boys finish what they're going to say. And I say, oh, you know, Matthew, that was great. I really loved listening to you. Got some fabulous ideas. I'm just going to listen now to what Emily wants to say, because I can see that Emily has been waiting for a little while. So we're all going to have a listen now. I'm just trying to advocate for little girls so that they have that platform. Like Mm -hmm. your voice is just as important as Matthew's. You know, in early year settings, when a child hurts another child, the practitioner will say to the child who's done the harming, you need to say sorry to so-and-so. And then the child dutifully says sorry. Now, I understand it's important to apologize, but the child that got hurt has no voice in that interaction. And if anything, they're expected to just accept the apology and move on. So I try and, again, model for teachers and staff that I'm working with that if especially if it's a little boy that has hurt a little girl or pushed them. And I'll say, hey, oh, you know, look at Lucy. Lucy looks like she's feeling a bit sad. And instead of saying to the little boy, can you say sorry to Lucy? I say, you know, it's not okay what you just did. You need to ask her if she's all right. And then he'll say, are you all right? And sometimes she'll say yes. And at the times I've had it where the girl will say, no, no, I'm not all right. And then I say, okay, so now you need to say to her, what can I do to help you? What can I do to make this better? Because then she's got a voice, hasn't she? She's going to be feel heard. Do something to fix it. You know, give me a hug or give me back the toy that you took off me or whatever the thing is to fix the problem. But she's then in control of that interaction as opposed to the boy just Mm. saying sorry, getting off the hook, going on about his day and the girl being left with whatever the harm is. And I am saying boys and girls because, you know, yeah, the conversation is about having girls' voices um, heard and it could work the other way around. But in my experience a lot of times it is the little girls that that need support with their voices being heard the reality that so much of you know what we think and feel like you know really has come from just the way these things have been cultivated in us as young children and so thank you judith for being with us and for your vulnerability and just sharing your inspiring story i know our listeners will be deeply touched and impacted and as always to our listeners Thank you for making the time to listen to this episode of the Power of Stories podcast. Thank you so much, both of you. Judith, thanks very, very much for talking with us today. I am so deeply grateful and inspired. Mm -hmm. Big thanks. And also thank you for sharing your story at sayitforward.org, which is how we got to, to know you. I'd also say a 
Big thanks to Lisa DeJuvine, who is the co-producer and editor of the Power of Stories podcast. And of course, a huge thank you to you, Yodit. Judith, is there anything you'd like to say to leave our listeners with? Thank you both so much for your amazing work. Um, I love reading the stories and listening to the podcast, and it's just brilliant to be included and asked to be a part of it. It's really wonderful. So thank you so much. And to our listeners, we invite you to visit sayitforward.org, a place where you are welcome to share one or more stories about your unique path to empowerment. Or you can read the stories of other women and girls. This is Sharon Catherine D'Agostino and Yodit Kifle-Smith signing off for now and hoping you'll join us for our next episode of the Power of Stories podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we do hope you'll give us a review and recommend the Power of Stories to a friend. And lastly, we want to remind you of the power of your story.